Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 28th of February. Uh, I am here with Tyler, and we have a pretty full show today. Uh, we're going to be a bit responsive to the news and talk about uh, self-immolation and the act of protest that took place at the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. Um, normally, self-immolation in the United States is not really covered, period. Uh, the act happens way more frequently, I think, than people acknowledge. But for whatever reason and reasons that we'll get into, this has been discussed, right? And it has been debated. And uh, I think that despite uh, despite the fact that it looked like it was going to be buried in the same way that a lot of other acts of self-immolation were buried, I think that a number of incentives has vaulted it really to the front page of almost every news organization this yesterday and this morning. Um, so we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about a recent article that I, well, I don't know, recent, it came out yesterday. <laughs> so extremely recent article that I published about uh, pretendianism and the case of Elizabeth Hoover. And I think that Tyler is the right person to talk about this with because Tyler understands the academy. He certainly understands the incentives for people who, like me and Tyler, are, quote, POCs within the academy, especially within some of the more social sciences, humanities, and that uh, these are all things that we've seen, especially at small elite colleges like Bates, which is where Tyler teaches. Tyler, how are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm a little uh, under the weather. My uh, I caught a cold from a little kid that was not my little kid. But you know, what are you? <laughs> what are you gonna do? Uh, you win some, you lose some. So hang it in there. Is this your first uh, child transmitted disease? Yeah, it is. It was uh, <laughs> my. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. My little uh, little nephew was a bit under the weather, and uh, yeah, had a had a penchant for touching everything, and I uh, seemed to have, get... yeah caught his his head cold. So you know, it's fine. It's just uh, it's mostly just you know the stuffy nose and stuff. So it's no big deal, but it's it's annoying. Get used to it, man. It does not stop. Our kid. Uh... Our one-year-old has been sick, I think, for about four straight months, it feels like. And, That's what everyone uh, tells me. Yeah, sometimes we catch it, sometimes we don't. It's kind of sad unless you just, you have to kind of put yourself in the mindset that this is how immune systems are built, right? Yeah, and yeah, if, yeah. If he wasn't going through this, then he would be one of these adults that's constantly sick. Yeah, I don't no think that, that the science for that is actually true. <laughs> <laughs> in fact i assume it's not but you know you sort of it almost kind of sounds like uh you know i have the antibodies right which i you know like there's there's a whole thing like jonathan isaac and the nba was like i have the antibodies why do i have to get the yeah, yeah. vaccine i've been immunized um, like aaron Rodgers. yeah yeah right right, right. <laughs> but you know, you just have to ride for it or otherwise it just seems intolerable because your child is sick all the time and you're getting sick. And look, like some of these daycare viruses are nuclear grade. Right? Like, really? You're never. Yeah, you're yeah never I think that's why I was bummed about it. Like, I'm really good with being sick. It doesn't uh, I'm not someone who that really gets to. But I was like, I've been mentally prepared for like when we put him into daycare. I'm going to be sick all the time. But I was like, I was like, this is too fucking early. Like, he's not in daycare yet. I don't want to have this like start now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Daycare is. Daycare is wild. It's like you, the people, I don't know if you, for us at least, we love the people who run the daycare. We love the other 
families in the daycare and we love the people who are the child care workers in the daycare. But when you walk in, it's like a little bit gross. It doesn't matter how nice the day yeah, yeah, yeah. is. It's like six one-year-olds just crawling all over each other with gigantic faces of snot and drool and just like rubbing it all over each other. And it's the most unsanitary place that is possible. Anyway, that's my uh, that's my older dad to younger dad advice for the day. Nice. Um, all right. I want to start this conversation about uh, self-immolation with a little clip from um, from our former president, uh, Barack Obama. On December 17th, a young vendor named Mohammed Bouazizi was devastated when a police officer confiscated his cart. This was not unique. It's the same kind of humiliation that takes place every day in many parts of the world. The relentless tyranny of governments that deny their citizens dignity. Only this time, something different happened. After local officials refused to hear his complaints, this young man, who had never been particularly active in politics, went to the headquarters of the provincial government, doused himself in fuel, and lit himself on fire. There are times in the course of history when the actions of ordinary citizens spark movements for change because they speak to a longing for freedom that has been building up for years. In America, think of the defiance of those patriots in Boston who refused to pay taxes to a king, or the dignity of Rosa Parks as she sat courageously in her seat. So it was in Tunisia. Is that vendor's act of desperation tapped into the frustration felt throughout the country. All right. That was a noted leftist meme activist, Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> um, talking about Mohammed Bouazizi, who was the street vendor, as he explains in the clip, right? That's sort of sparked or is giving credit for sparking the Arab Spring. Um, what I find notable about this piece, I think should be very obvious, right? Which is that at times the president of the United States is talking about self-immolation as an act of defiance akin to the founding of America and Rosa Parks, right? Um, and that I find this clip to be very interesting. I wanted to bring it to your attention because so much of the conversation right now around self-immolation has been about the appropriateness of it. It's been about mental health. It's been about suicide prevention, right? It has been very strange to me because I, you know, I was aware of this Obama clip because the self-immolation is one of the, I would say like eight things that I'm very interested in as a journalist and have been for many years. Um, but I've been watching this from afar a bit and going a little bit crazy because it makes it, I think that what has happened is that the part of the commentariat seems to be arguing at this point that this is so rare, right? This is so extreme and that it shouldn't be seen as an act of political defiance. It shouldn't be seen as a political act at all. It should be seen as like an unwell person who's going to spark copycats right and so yeah i wanted to get your sense of this right like what, what, what was your reaction hearing the president talk like this it underscores that um 
self-immolation is politically legible or like legible as politics when it's convenient um, and when it serves American foreign policy and national interests. And when it doesn't, um, then we sort of medicalize and pathologize it. I mean, you know, I don't pretend to know the, um, you know, mental health history of Aaron Bushnell um, and who knows what's going to come out in the next couple of weeks. But I find the knee jerk uh, reaction and assumption that this we should understand this first and foremost as a mental health crisis to be really offensive um, and just t- totally strips him of all agency. And that's not to say that I think, you know, self-immolation is um, is or is not an effective mode of protest or whatever. But it's, it's solely to say that, you know, I think assuming that this is somebody who's not of sound mind is really, um, I find it galling. And I think, you know, um, there's this thing that seems to happen with political suicides like this that you are pointing to, which is that they immediately like the media discourse around around it tends to focus a on mental health and b over like social contagion right that this is going to like if we don't talk about this in the correct way which basically means right. just like reporting the facts with no interpretation a little discussion of motivation etc um then we risk sparking like a bunch of copycats um and we know that's true for like suicide in general um there seems to me to be very very little evidence that that's true for this particular form of suicide which is um political and is self-immolation there's this constant lip service to balancing i think like what you might call public health against the public interest when it comes to stuff like this um, and it seems like under the guise of public health and suicide prevention, we just, you know, don't talk about these kinds of things or we try to avoid talking about them. Um, and we particularly try to avoid talking about them as politics, unless it's something like the Arab Spring where the you know president wants to compare it to the Boston Tea Party. I don't know. Right. I find it like I was really upset by the mental health thing. I found it just um you know, morally nihilistic, like it's, it's people who can't imagine um, caring about anything enough to make a kind of sacrifice, you know, and so they have to assume that he must be mentally ill. It pissed me off in a way that I did not expect. And I think that the source is that I think that there's this thing that happens where one study gets thrown around and then norms get established quite quickly. And so I am the king of saying that's just Twitter, right? But the problem is that when it comes to media norms, Twitter is actually what sets media norms because every journalist is addicted to Twitter still. Even the ones that are off it, they're not really off it, right? They have burner accounts and they probably use it more now because they don't have like the potential shame of tweeting something stupid. They can just kind of be, you know, they can be voyeurs about it. And this happened around school shootings, right? Where basically there was a, proclamation made and that it was made by people as diverse as like, I don't know, like, I don't know who the liberal version of it, but it's something Ben Shapiro says a lot too, right? But it's not a partisan thing. It is almost consensus at this point that we should not say the names of school shooters on the air because that makes, gives them the fame that they want. Now that is like, that, that part of it is actually somewhat understandable to me, which is just like, fuck these guys, don't give them what they want, right? But Attached to that, and perhaps the more compelling part or the part that is that is stated more is that if you report the name, right, and if you do too much reporting on these school shootings, then what will happen is that people will be inspired because to do it more often because they just want to make get a lot of attention. So we're going to inspire more school shootings. 
I have never in my life seen one credible piece of evidence that points to that, like nothing. I haven't even really seen evidence, right? It's just something that people state as conventional wisdom that if you search for the source of this conventional wisdom, like you're going to be ratted to like some obscure paper about this, right? That is most likely like just full of shit. Won't replicate. <laughs> right, right, right. Like everything won't replicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... That's what I was thinking about in terms of this, which is just that you're going to have to show me better evidence than a broad suicide uh, than a broad suicide study, right? About suicide contagion, to for me to say that we should not take any of these acts seriously in the United States, even though we compare them to Rosa Parks in other contexts, and like it's by we I mean like the most popular, <laughs> like politician maybe of our lifetimes right um <laughs> uh somebody that many many people who voted for including as you pointed out last episode people who voted for trump right that um that this sort of man who embodies the conventional wisdom of america is saying uh in a press conference right not privately in a press conference comparing to rosa parks and the founding of america the two most symbolic ideas that he could come up with. (laughs) Um, It's pretty rarefied company. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, you can't do better than that. Right. Um, That, that in America that it needs to be handled differently, I think is lunacy, right? It is absolute lunacy. And um, I will not speculate too much on this, on the motivations of why people are saying this, but I do know what the effect is, right? The effect is to take a protest, a form, a gruesome form of protest, a form of protest that deeply unsettles me. Um, one that I hope people don't do, but that I at least accept as a form of protest. And it turns it into like a mushy, oh, isn't this sad, uh, pearl clutching, bullshit, liberal oh man, like, what do we do now that somebody else is going to self-immolate type of slippery slope panic that I just think is both rhetorically, morally, and ideologically bankrupt. Like, what are we doing, right? We can't accept a form of protest as a form of protest. Like, you can accept it as a form of protest and say, it's really fucking bad to do this, right? Um, But you have to meet it on its own terms. You cannot just turn it into mental health bullshit like everything else in this country. I think there is a certain kind of person who's saying it's a mental health thing as basically to deflect away from the politics of it. But I think there's just like another kind of like normie lib media person who is like sincerely believes that, you know, and that we shouldn't talk about it in this way. And um, I don't know. I just, like I said, I mean, the word that keeps coming back is, is galling. Like it's just, it's really, really galling. I think it evinces, um, and I'm not somebody who thinks, uh, you know, necessarily that self-immolation in those contexts is especially politically effective. But then debate that, right? Like, then have a conversation about like self-immolation and like what it can or can't accomplish, and when it does accomplish things and when it doesn't. But don't, you know, do this thing where we're going to treat this person like a child who, by you know, all appearances was of sound body and mind, um, seemed perfectly calm and rational. And we're just going to, um, you know, really, I think in a certain sense, besmirch his memory by uh, just refusing to take at least initially, you know, him at face value when he says, you know, what he was doing. Um, Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And I really do think the 
um, sort of media blackout isn't the right word because I think there's been a lot of coverage of it, but that coverage is largely just really documentary and fact finding with the exception of conservative news, which is, I mean, predictably, you know, national review ran a thing sort of slyly implying that he was an anti-Semite and pointing out that he has pronouns in his bio and all these kinds of things, you know? And so I think um, the only people who are like talking about it as politics are on the right. And then the sort of normie media, you know, liberal media is just um, documenting the fact of the case and doesn't want to like think about what it means or, or why, you know, why it happened and how we should understand it. When I was at, uh, when I was at the times I had a email address that people could write me in to, and I got a lot of emails, uh, just cause it's the times and the average age of the people emailing me as one would expect was probably about like 72 years old. Like that might actually be a low estimate, but you know, you get a sense of what the times readership, who is a very old readership actually thinks about things based on the volume of emails you get in response, right? So when I wrote about gardening, for example, I got a shitload of responses. Oh, that's funny. The thing I think I got the most responses about was when I wrote this very complainy kind of joke crank column about buttons in cars, about how they had removed all the buttons in car dashboards and they just had uh, touch screens and how that was, I hated it. Yeah, yeah. I've never gotten more email. I've got like thousands of emails. Really? And like the yeah, old heads yeah. were like, bring back the buttons. Yeah. They're just like, what is the screen? And I was like, I feel the same way, you know, but That's awesome. one of the pieces that I got the most response was that I wrote about self-immolation and, um, a case of where a man lit himself on fire to protest climate change. Um, and that I was quite sympathetic to this man. And I would say that the vast majority of emails that I got, and look, the Times readership who writes a columnist or whatever, a newsletter writer, an email is going to be very, I think it's fair to say, characterized pretty MSNBC. But I was shocked at how overwhelmingly the people who were responding understood this as an act of protest and really deeply sympathized with this man, right? Um, And so I don't think it is a public thing, right? I think the public understands it as a form of protest in large part because they've been conditioned to, because I think that the uh, self-immolation of Tet Quang Duc, right, Mm -hmm. in Vietnam Vietnam. um, is in some ways both mythologized because people think, oh, he was protesting the war. He wasn't. He was protesting religious persecution, right? Um, That it's been so mythologized that the image is so arresting, right, that it was... uh, friggin rage against the machine album cover but before yep. that it is one of the most famous photographs in history right i would say that i don't want to make like a kind of sports type of list of the top 10 most famous images but it's way the fuck up there yeah for sure man <laughs> right um and that we hold that image as holy right like we hold that image as like almost sanctified as being a purity of of descent right this is the most pure descent can be and because people are conditioned in that way, they still see it that way. Um, and that I think a lot of Americans still see it that way. But I, I don't want to talk about the, this sort of media part of it anymore. I want to talk about the actual act a little bit. Um, you know, this man, I think, as people have pointed out, that I hope that maybe a lot of the listeners are aware of, was an uh, active duty Air For- in the Air Force. Uh, he was a cyber defense operations specialist. Or the day before he committed this act, he posts a message on social media and he says, many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do if I was alive during slavery or the Jim Crow South or apartheid? What would I do if my country was committing genocide? The answer is you're doing it right now, right? 
I want you to like respond a little bit to that statement and, and what you think about it. Yeah, I also read that statement. It really stuck with me. And I think the thing, um, I think it's actually like a useful kind of heuristic, right? To like think about how we think about what Aaron Bushnell did. And by we, I mean like the sort of, you know, media liberal, you know, ego versus, you know, how we would think about this if this was somebody who had done this during slavery or during the Holocaust in a, you know, Polish ghetto or whatever. And we would talk about it really, really differently. We wouldn't say that they were mentally ill. We don't say John Brown was mentally ill, usually. Well, some of them, some people do. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's a bad example. Definitely during the, during the time, yes, there is, he was talked about in somewhat similar terms, right? Um, I remember my, uh, Noel Ignatiev is sort of my mentor, right? Mm-hmm. He was very interested in John Brown, and he had this whole thing about the way that they photographed John Brown, right? Because John Brown photographs, he looks intense, man. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> right. That's super interesting. Right. right. So this was the public image because they basically found like the craziest looking photo of him possible in the distributor. I don't even know if that's true, but you know, this is, this is what I was told. So yeah, keep going. No, 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 no. That's really interesting, actually, the photo thing. Um, but anyway, I mean, I just think like if this were a different context, we would immediately think about this differently, right? But, you know, because it's, you know, the 21st century and because it's, you know, a war that is broadly supported by the U.S. and the president and Congress and we're sending, you know, billions upon billions of dollars overseas, um, that, you know, there is, uh, we just pathologize this immediately. And, you know, um, I think, uh, I, I really don't think, again, self-immolation is, you know, uh, makes sense uh, in most circumstances as a form of protest. Um, but nonetheless, I guess, you know, I think his point about um, sort of complicity and complacency is an important one. And particularly given that he's in the armed forces, which is, you know, something that people um, are simultaneously like playing up in terms of the narrative component, right. but also like playing down in terms of like how that frames his motivations, right? Um, you know, this is somebody who's like actively involved in the US military, which is obviously a part and directly um, of you know, what's going on in Gaza. And I just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, um, it's an act that's at once really hard to understand, but I also think it's, it's one where, um, you know, uh, I, I just am really troubled by all the people who seem to be like tisk tisking him when they're, you know, sitting at home on their couch or they're, you know, pathologizing him as mentally ill or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think the historical analogies are, are really useful to think about this because I do think, I mean, even the Arab Spring example, right? This is obviously so context dependent and whether we think of political suicide as political or as pathological is entirely dependent on sort of national interest, cultural culture and sort of history. I do think that him being in the military is very important in terms of the way in which it's covered and the seriousness with which people take it. There have been uh, several, especially within the context of the war, which is much more immediate and emotionally gripping to people, regardless of how you feel about it, right? Like um, that it is something that is on people's minds and that it seems to justify that type of response. If, If it could ever be justified, it would be under this context, right? And I think I agree with people who say, you really, really shouldn't do this, right? I want to make that very clear. Like uh, my fascination with this comes from the fact that I just find it so arresting, but also just so gruesome. Um, And that trying to understand why somebody would do this or how somebody would do this. And I think that part of what compels people about it is that it offers an alternative idea of morality and life 
it allows people to think about the ways in which the value of their life is connected to the value of other people's lives, right? That if somebody, if you could theorize or believe that you committing this act will lead to less suffering for many, many other people, then you make that calculation and then you make that choice, right? But I think that when you think about that choice, like the idea that you bring into pre we've talked about this a lot, but you know, like the idea that you bring in depression or like whatever psychosis into it, like I think that's fucking bullshit unless you can prove it, right? I think that that is actually a rational calculation that one can make. Now, I would never find myself concluding what Aaron Bushnell did, right? Mm -hmm. But it is within the parameters of moral conversations that we have, right? Which is just like, what is the most that I can do to, if, if, if I feel as Aaron Bushnell did, that the war in Gaza is fully immoral, what can I do to stop that? What would I have done to stop slavery, right? What sacrifice was I willing to make? And the arresting part of self-immolation is that these people are providing you with an answer, right? They're providing you with an answer that this is possible. So what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and that is some fucking heavy shit. And yeah. um, again, I do not want to. That's how I think that people should think about it. I don't think they should think about it in any other context. They should think about it and they should think about the relative morality of somebody doing this right and foisting this shit onto people and i think that many people will conclude in the ways that i think a lot of the people have concluded when you've seen their opinions on social media or whatever or or even i think like if you took a poll of the country that while horrifying that they understand the proposition that is being laid out in front of them right they understand the parameters of the, of the moral question that Aaron Bushnell is asking. And I think that's the best way to think about it. Like, I just don't, I can't think of an alternative to think about it. And guess who also thought about it that way? Barack fucking Obama. <laughs> you know, so what are we doing here? <laughs> no, man, dude, I agree. And I think the thing, um, useful isn't exactly the right word, but like what I think um, Aaron Bushnell and self-immolation does is force the rest of us to think about what exactly we're doing. And I don't think it calls people to self-immolate. I think it like forces us to examine what something like Aaron Bushnell does is like I said, it's not, um, it's not an example for us to follow. It's like a mirror, you know, like how, what are you right. doing? Um, can you do a little bit more than you're doing? Look what this guy did. No one's asking you to do that, right? But like maybe you could do a 24-hour hunger strike rather than a 12-hour intermittent fast, you know? Um, and so like, I think that's how at least I think about it. And I agree with you. That, that's how I think about it. Um, and, you know, uh, Eric Levitz, who I generally like, um, and I think most of his stuff is interesting, but he, I was arguing with him yesterday about this. And he, you know, he seemed to be of the opinion that most people would see this as suicide. And I think that's ridiculous. Like most people no. associate self-immolation immediately with protest, right? They, they don't, you know, and so I think the frame of reference is totally different. Like, ev like the only cases of self-immolation anyone can name are all political, right? That's how you imagine it in the culture. And, and like, and by the way, like approved political by Americans, right? Yeah. Uh, tech, yeah. Tech Wong Duke. Absolutely. Even yeah, though they did sure. it wrong, what he like self-immolated over, like there, it's still the idea is is still the totally. idea. Yep. I can't think of a single very famous instance of self-immolation where Americans generally think that it was not justified, right? Uh, Mohammed Bouazizi, right? Like, uh, 
people think that that was necessary, right? Because a street vendor was humiliated in the street. In the street yeah, know? or even your um, um, great New York Times piece about um, the man who self-immolated to protest climate change. One of the things that I thought was interesting in that piece is his father um, seemed really resistant to people like pathologizing it and was like this, right. you know, he was somebody who this is was like an outgrowth of his convictions, you know, so don't pathologize him. My interest in this started, I write about this in the piece I wrote a couple of years ago, but I was going to write a piece, in terms of the media interest part, there is this interesting distinction that I want to make before we move on. And it is that I am not saying that uh, the media does not drive these acts in any way. Of course it does. They are done for attention. They are filmed and recorded in many, in many instances, and they are done to shock the public into something. Or as you put it very, I think, elegantly, to hold up a mirror. I think that's the best way I've heard it said, actually. Um, it holds a mirror up to you and it asks you, what the fuck are you doing? And you will most likely feel shame about it if you if you agree with his convictions or even if you don't, you know, you're like, what am I doing to advance uh, the other side of this conflict? Right. Like it, it asks everyone that question. And that is why I think it is such a unique form of protest, even though I really think that people shouldn't do it. Well, um, that's the thing I find so frustrating, too, is this is such a, like what makes it a such a um, captivating form of protest is it's so impossible in a certain like it's so painful, you know, and like, right. it's an ex that's what's extreme about it. And the idea that people are going to rush to copy this extraordinarily gruesome painful form of protest i just find entirely unbelievable you know right, um like, right. like the very nature of the thing is that it's extremely hard to replicate and we don't have to indulge this fantasy that people are going to line themselves up to light you know light themselves on fire it's it's preposterous let's let's uh let's talk a little bit about um yeah i don't know I if it's a happier topic but it's a different topic <laughs> so uh i mean i'm stoked to talk about your article that came out yesterday i've been uh, i've heard bits and pieces about this for a while so I'm really, I was thrilled to see it finally um, come to light. So uh, your article was titled, A Professor Claimed to be Native American. Did she know she wasn't? Um, and, you know, so it's a story about this woman, Elizabeth Hoover, um, who had identified as um, Native for most of her life, um, had sort of grown up being told these stories about grandparents and her Native American heritage and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, moved through academia from grad school to, you know, professorships from Brown. And then more recently, I think in 2020, she moved to Berkeley um, and became a prominent Native scholar, as you sort of chart only for last May, um, in May 2022, for her to be outed as a pretendian, uh, somebody who's um, you know, doesn't actually have Native American heritage. Um, as you kind of chart in the piece, right? She sort of professes that she didn't know. She um, wasn't aware that she didn't have this heritage and so on. And I think one of the questions that you really provocatively ask is, is that, uh, is that case believable or not? Um, but I guess I just wanted to ask you what, what was the process researching this like? I mean, it took like nine months and what, um, you know, what attracted you to Elizabeth and her, her case? Well, part of it is because I live in Berkeley and it was in Berkeley. So there was a sort of locality thing, which uh, is a very underrated inspiration for a lot of, <laughs> for a lot of magazine journalism. It's because it like, kind of happened, right? But part of it was because I seemed to intersect with a lot of interests that I have that you also have, which is that uh, trying to answer this question, and it's one that I still don't know the answer to, which is that 
to what extent are people incentivized by a type of identity-driven incentive system that has been put in place? What, to what extent are people going to game that system? To what extent is much of our nonprofit academic media world driven by that exact type of incentive? How cynical is it at this point? Right now, if you ask some people, they'd say this is the most cynical thing in the world. I tend, I think you too, but I, t I tend to not think that it's so cynical, but I think it's somewhat cynical, right? That we're, but we're, that we increasingly become cynical as it moves along. Um, and then, and then within specifically the academy, what does that mean in terms of the knowledge production function of the academy? And so I thought that when I, you think about a magazine piece, you kind of have to think about it in that sort of way, which is. I don't want to do like shop talk here, but <laughs> this is the one thing I will say is that at least for me, there needs to be some moral ambiguity to it. And there needs to be something that will cause the reader to scratch their heads a little bit and say like, is this right? That moment of disorientation, I think is quite important to pull somebody through. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're just sort of documenting a bunch of lies and that you're not really inspiring anyone to think about anything. The story to me, at least as I read it, was not about, um, you know, Elizabeth Hoover. I mean, it was, but it was about this incentive structure, right? It wasn't about tisk tisking this woman. It was about like, how is it that this kind of thing can can happen so easily in academia, you know? Um, so, so frequently when it comes specifically to Native studies. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you, do you, why do you think that is? Because I mean, there is not, um, oh, you know, man. I don't think yeah. this is a, like I don't encounter or hear about people trying to pass as black or Mexican or whatever very often for purposes of, you know, hiring well, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> well, there are examples, right? So obviously Rachel Dolezal, but right, Rachel course, yeah. Dolezal is so rare, right? Um, and in some ways, her story was turned into such a lurid tale that it almost, I, I feel like it sort of overshot the importance of Rachel Dolezal by quite a bit, right? Like, like, if this was a thing that was always happening, then that would be one thing. But I mean, I'm sorry that there has not been another Rachel Dolezal no. really out there. And then there was Jessica Krug, who was the uh, white professor, I think at the oh, University yeah. of Wisconsin, who... Heck, went by an alter ego, Jessica La Bombalera, and, you know, would occasionally record videos of herself doing just the most offensive, I don't even know what it would, what to call it, you know, like, I guess Latino gangster accent, like, I mean, oh it my was God. fucking crazy, you know, and so, like, <laughs> <laughs> and with Jessica Krug, and I also agree with Rachel Dolezal, I think that they're, they're unique in that there's not that many people doing that, and it's pretty rare. But in terms of Native studies, it is not rare at all. Right? Mm -hmm. It is almost the norm, not the norm, but it is so common that uh, one of the sources in the piece, Kim Tallbear, who is a somebody who used to teach at Cal and now teaches um, in Canada, said that she believes that in the social, in the social sciences and the humanities that she estimates 25% of the people are either have either made up these stories about their lineage or are so far descended, like it's just so far from whatever thing That's that they're ridiculous. claiming that it's a it was irrelevant to their lives, right? Fully irrelevant to their lives. The most convincing and the most compelling explanation to me was that was twofold. The first is that 
Native people in general, it's difficult for them to get into the academy on a track where they end up at one of these prestigious universities. It doesn't mean that you have to be rich. It just means at some point, something broke well for you, right? Maybe you're an amazing student. Maybe you had a great mentor. Maybe you had something that, that propelled you into this rarefied, exclusive, exclusive, exclusive space, right? And that um, you also have to excel within that space. You also need to have like the time and the mental capacity, not in terms of intelligence, but in terms of like, do you have Bandwidth, the ability yeah. to think about your scholarship and whatever books you're writing all the time? Or do you have shit happening at home that's going to fuck all that up, right? And so it's very difficult for somebody who comes from community to go through all of that, right? Because of the real material factors and the real material conditions that, that are of most people's, most native people's lives. And so then what happens? Well, it means that the people who can kind of float in there you know, are going to have a huge advantage if everybody thinks, oh, A and B are the same, right? Like this person who is claiming 132nd descent um, and grew up and went to a private school is the exact same as somebody who came, who grew up in community because they both checked the same box. Yep. And overwhelmingly, that is what happens. And the reason why it happens is because it is either illegal or it is very, very impolite to ask about the actual origins that people have. And that a lot of these pretendians, almost all the pretendians are not quite very specific about exactly mm -hmm. what they're claiming, right? A lot of the graduate students I talked to were saying that, man, it's really weird to be the only person from your community in one of these spaces, right? That you think constantly about, is this the right thing for me to do? Should I be like thinking about like things like, committees and like, you know, tenure committees and should I be thinking about these types of things or is my time better served going back to community, right? Is it better served from like being with the people that I grew up with? If you are white or you grew up basically white and then you end up just doing, deciding that this identity is important to you in college, I'm not, this is not what Liz did, but it, you know, this is a lot of the examples of what the pretendians are. It's like somebody who had a conversion in college. This is very common. We all know people who became really, really, really into their <laughs> culture in college, right? Um, that they don't have to think about any of that shit, right? So they can only focus on their scholarship, right? They can only focus on the little random and arbitrary and exclusive little things that turn somebody into a tenure track professor, right? That they don't have to think about any of that stuff. They don't feel that conflict. And then the last part of it, which is something I go into quite a bit in the piece, is that I think that if you are basically, and this is something that I've noticed for myself in, in the same exclusive spaces or perhaps even more exclusive spaces in the media, which is that if you have been trained your entire life to be around white people in a way that makes white people, rich white people comfortable, then you're going to do very well, right? Um, that that is sort of the secret sauce, right? If mm -hmm. you're going to give real advice to young POC people or young minorities coming up in these spaces, the thing, and you say, look, I am not saying that you should do this and I'm not saying it's moral to do this, but if all you're talking about is return on investment, then the thing that you can do better that like the most important thing is that you should have gone, you should go to Harvard, right? The second most important thing that you should do is that you should learn the lesson of Harvard, which is how do you act around these rich white people, right? Um, and if you are a rich white person, Liz was not, right? Liz grew up in a pretty financially income, yeah. challenged like environment. 
But if you are one of these people, then it's really easy <laughs> for you to know how to talk to rich white people because you are a rich white person and also you've been around rich white people your entire life. So like that that's that's I think like the that's like the supply side part of it, right? Now on the on the university side part of it, it's much darker, right? And I, I mm-hmm. just want to get your sense of what you think the university side part of it is. Yeah, man. So I think um on the university side, there's a huge push for diversity um, that is largely for reasons of optics. Um, I think uh, universities in general um, try to get diversity in the quickest and cheapest way possible. So in the case of college admissions, that generally takes the form of admitting a lot of diverse students from um, high income brackets, right? So wealthy black kids who went to prep schools, and then they get to slap their faces on brochures and say, oh, well, look at all our diversity, right? Um, And that's like the cheap way. And then I think um, in terms of hiring, right, there's not cost in the same way, right? Because with admissions, they're trying to get people who can pay full tuition. They don't have Mm -hmm. to tap their endowments, but they also get the benefit of diversity. Um, But when it comes to hiring for faculty, I think the incentive structure is a little different. And what they want is just diversity as quickly as possible, right? So how do you do that? One of the ways you do that is write job ads in subfields that are disproportionately likely to have minorities in it, right? So like things like black studies, indigenous studies, whatever, right? Because it's not legal actually to just like winnow a job pool by race, right? So you have Mm -hmm. to do that kind of artificially by um, using these end arounds to try to, you know, curate the kind of um, diversity in a pool you're looking for. Um, But in general, you know, I think um, one of the sort of problems on the, so basically, you know, universities, a lot of them um, really weight extremely heavy. And and sometimes I think won't even look um, at white candidates, basically, right? Like they they have no shot. I think that's just an ugly reality. Um, I say ugly because I'm generally pro affirmative action, but like um, there are definitely cases where you know, white Pell Grant students from low income backgrounds, right, are like, I have a buddy who had a, um, grew up in a commune, literally like a religious commune and had a very hard life and struggled and, you know, pulled himself up by the bootstraps. And yet um, he's totally illegible in terms of diversity, right? But, um, you know, so hiring, I think in a lot of universities, particularly in the humanities and the social sciences is weighing really weighting diversity super, super heavily. Um, And part of what that means is it's kind of a two-way street, right? They're also looking for candidates who signal diversity in some kind of way, like are good at performing it, you know? Um, And I think one of the things that really struck me about this piece, I'll, I'll read it in a minute, but there's this passage where you're describing like a couple different candidates for the Brown job that um, Elizabeth Hoover ended up getting. Right. And there's like this one native guy who's like dressed in a three piece suit and is not like performing his nativeness outwardly. And then on the other hand, you have Hoover, who I mean, one of my favorite lines in your piece is you quote from this woman who says um, that Hoover dressed like it looked like an Etsy shop exploded on her because she wore so many like, you know, beads and trinkets and so on. Right. Um, And I do think, you know, academia really just love shortcuts, right? So if they can jerry-rig a candidate pool to be more diverse, and then if they can just quickly sort people who like perform diversity in the most outward facing ways, they just, you know, they try to do that as, as quickly as possible. Um, and I think that's, you know, what you're what you're seeing here. Um, and to me, you know, at least the way I think about it, and I, I gather that you think about it really similarly. I mean, to me, the question is never like you can say maybe it's immoral to play up your identity in a certain way. It's definitely immoral to like lie about your identity. That's that's clear. But like 
maybe you say that like, well, it's really immoral to like play up your identity for the benefits of white people. Um, you can debate that. But but to me, the real immorality or like the problem is these structural incentives, right? So like we shouldn't be wagging our finger at people who, you know, lean into their identity because they know it's going to give them advantage on the job market. Right. We should be asking like, why do these jobs solicit the most crass performances of nativeness or blackness or Hispanicness or whatever, just so people can get a foot in the door, right? And that's that's to me where we need to be laying the blame for the the kind of Hoover stuff. Um, but I want to read from your your piece real quick, if you don't mind, because I thought this passage was great. Yeah, go ahead. Um, okay, so it's describing the hiring process um, since we're on that topic that led to Hoover getting hired at Brown ultimately. By 2012, Brown University's search for a Native Studies scholar had been going on for several years. Candidates were flown to Providence and asked to give job talks, during which the scholar meets students and presents research. Some candidates who were brought in dropped out voluntarily, others were passed over. Annette Rodriguez was a graduate fellow at the center toward the end of this period. She told me about a native scholar who gave a job talk wearing a three-piece suit with a distinctively patterned tie. Someone asked him about the pattern, expecting that the design had come from his tribal community. The scholar said it was from Barney's. He wasn't going to fuel the fantasies of the white imagination of what an authentic native person was. Rodriguez said Liz was very happy to do that, right? So like, and I think that's so stark, right? You have like a native guy dressed up in a three-piece suit. He's wearing some colorful tie. The white people assume it's some kind of tribal thing. I at least have definitely seen circumstances in which people are know what a certain kind of white faculty member wants from them and is willing to perform it to get you know what they where they're trying to go but do you think this um you talk to a lot of native scholars do you think this um kind of like performing nativeness for you know the prying white gaze of sort of wealthy white faculty members is common is this something that you know came up a lot there's some disagreement but i would say that for the people that are listening to this podcast, the best book to read is by Phil Delorio, who is uh, the he's a scholar historian at Harvard. He's also the son of Vine Delorio, who is uh, you know generally credited with as the as the sort of godfather of Native studies. And the book is called Playing Indian, and it's a history of why white people dress up as Native Americans, starting basically before the Boston Tea Party. Um, goes all the way to basically like grateful the great deadheads who did this a lot, I guess. Right. Oh yeah. It's a wonderful book. Um, and he doesn't, he makes very clear distinctions between pretendianism and playing Indian, right? Because playing Indian is something that the people do and then they take off the costume and then they, uh, are back to being white people. Like, it's not like the people who did the Boston tea party where people were then like saying, Oh no, I'm native American. Right. Like it was, it was a costume. Um, and, uh, and yet, I think that there's a lot of really interesting ideas in that book about this that I certainly felt quite, you know, it was a great context to have while writing this article. I think that in terms of defining what it is in the academy, I think that uh, the thing that we have to point out is basically that there is limits also to how to the performance, right? It has to be a performance within what the fantasies of the university are, but it's not something that can feel dangerous in any type of way, right? And um, there are native scholars who I know who I've spoken to or were made aware of, but just by talking to a lot of people, a lot of different professors, most of whom are not named in the story, right? This is like, I turned this in a very long, and uh, even at that point, a lot of people you know, like you, not everyone ends up making the last cut, but it doesn't mean that they're 
ideas and it, it actually has it's mostly just a narrative question right in terms mm -hmm. of what gets added in but um there are people who come in and they're deemed almost like not explicitly obviously nobody would say this but the general thought is like well maybe that person was almost too yeah native yep maybe yep. they're too rooted in community you know and that they make the mostly white or at least elite educated uh and very sort of cloistered faculty of that department feel uncomfortable in a way that they will never express but which is quite obvious to everybody who is like watching it from afar right yep. and so um the performance i don't think is one that is conscious i really really want to say that i don't think that people do this in the most cynical way possible where they just go i the, a lot of the response to this piece has been people being like see what you know like everyone's so cynical i'm like I don't of course that's true i agree it's not true like, i don't yeah. think that people take on an identity just to get better jobs now does it factor into the way in which they present themselves in specific situations yeah sure you know but not more so than any other job interview um now is it the type of thing that is seen as very very helpful yes you know and that's not the fault of the people who are doing it it is the fault of the people who have created that incentive structure uh for the most part mm -hmm. you know for the most part i think a lot of people are there's this isn't like that everyone who does this is blameless but for the most part, what I've seen is that the identity, and this is also true in the media, right? It's true in all exclusive spaces, which is like, it's exactly what we said before. It's a performance of one's identity that can be fully encapsulated within whatever system, hierarchical exclusive system that needs to be set in place. And if you can put diversity within that system with zero cost, as you said, then that is what is looked for. Um, Right. That like is frictionless why diversity. Yeah. Frictionless diversity is a great way to put it. Like there is no discomfort that is done. Somebody said this to me during the course of the article and it really stuck with me that part of the reason why there's so many pretendians is that a lot of Americans don't think that native people exist anymore. Right. Yeah. And so that the people who are committing these types of identity frauds, like they don't think there's a victim. Yeah. Like they legitimately don't think that there's a victim. Like they don't think that anybody is being excluded from opportunity because they've never met somebody who is also looking for that same opportunity. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's when you think about time. it that way, then that's where it's like, you're not blameless, right? Mm -hmm. You're not blameless. Um, this is not just, well, you know, people are uh, blameless implements of the machine and the machine is the one that's fault. I think that's mostly true. But man, like, you know, like you hear something like that and then you really have to reflect on it quite a bit, right? Like, is that true? I think that's absolutely true. You know, that most Americans don't think that there's a victim when the people that they're stealing from opportunities from grants from like $10 million fellowships, $10 million grants, those people are not, don't exist. And it's like, well, who cares, right? Um, <laughs> and that would not be true if the person was doing the same with the black community, Latino yeah. community, or Asian community, right? Like, I've mentioned this before, but I used to do a lot of college admissions tutoring. And um, one of the things that always stuck with me when I would tutor um, black students, and this often came from the parents, not the students, is they would say something like, you know, we, you know, he needs to come across as 
black but not ghetto right and like what they were trying to like distinguish was like they wanted to like hit the sweet spot of like a little you know a little bit of spice and a little like a little cultural difference to keep things interesting but not so much that it's going to make anyone uncomfortable right and i think there's like a lot of that going around where i think a certain kind of um you know minority academic or you know aspiring college student has to do a calculus of positioning myself as like you know intriguing and a little exotic and providing cultural difference but not too much that I'm not going to fit in and you know I think that's what I find so bankrupt about the way that diversity is justified today um, and this is partly for legal reasons and you probably know more about this than I do with your Supreme Court coverage but um, you know Diversity is rarely talked about in just like crass terms, like, you know, the college should roughly represent what the country looks like, and we should have pretty much proportional representation, right? That's not how we talk about diversity. We talk about the added benefit of diversity, right? That we have right. different kinds of experiences that we're bringing in. Um, and that turns diversity into basically like a resource that is being performed um, implicitly for white students, right? Like, because the white students aren't bringing the diversity, it's everyone else who's bringing the diversity. Um, and that's your like value you added, right? That you, you bring, you know? Um, and so that value added has to be framed in the right way, because if it, it makes the like, you know, nice white people uncomfortable, then you're no longer adding value. There's a great book by Elizabeth Lash Quinn, who's the daughter of Christopher Lash. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the book off the top of my head. It's, it's going to drive me nuts. But um, at any rate, she kind of has, uh, she does this comparison where she says like, there's a, like a kind of white guilt thing that is like BDSM basically, right? Where it's like a kind of masochism. Um, but she's like, you know, the like the what the white folks get out of that is like there's just enough pain but not too much so they get to like perform the ritual of like doing politics or being contrite or like you know trying to think seriously about their place in society but not so much that they have to like do anything differently once the penance is over right so like you go to the the you know the talk and you give your land acknowledgement and you acknowledge you're on stolen land it's uncomfortable but then you don't have to do anything right the discomfort is just in that moment and then it's gone and that seems to be the model for the, a lot of the kind of, you know, radical politics that we have in the academy is that you get to feel good and, you know, perf, you know, talk a big game and then you don't really have to do anything. Um, right, I, right. I don't know if I've told you this before, but just real quick, one of my favorite anecdotes about the academy is that um, there's a Freedom of Information Request Act that was released in the last couple of years um, about the CIA's reading French theory. And there's a great article by, by this guy <laughs> named Gabriel Rockhill. And the CIA um, had kept tabs on the academy for years um, because for a long time, American and Western academics were like disproportionately Marxist. Um, but when cultural studies came about in like the 70s and 80s, and there was this turn toward like identity studies and ethnic studies and black studies and whatever, the CIA was actually stoked because they were like, oh, great. They're like not Marxists anymore. Right. <laughs> and they, they understood cultural studies and ethnic studies and all these things as like a move to the right, you know. And what's so funny to me is like, you know, we, you know, a lot of people tend to think of this as, as radical. And meanwhile, you know, the CIA was watching from afar and is like, thank God, right, that they're, they're moving to the right now. They're doing all this <laughs> ethnic studies. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, ethnic studies is a requirement in California now, right, to oh, graduate. Right. And um, I don't think that you would think that this would be the type of thing that people would oppose with the same ferocity that they oppose, for example, like moving algebra back a year, right, which is a big controversy and cure in terms of California schools. But it generally has passed without real, with too much uh, 
fanfare? Fure, because I think that what happened is that people don't really mind that type of education, nor nor should they. Right? Totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is good to have an ethnic studies curriculum within public schools in California. We are a multi-ethnic state. And it is very weird to just say, pretend that certain people don't exist and their histories don't exist. If you can o- incorporate that into a curriculum, what is the problem with it that people end up with a greater knowledge base of what the people who are their fellow citizens around them in the state, where they're from, like what their history is. But the interesting thing is that like a lot of the people who were original ethnic studies scholars who were tapped to help develop this curriculum ended up sort of resigning in protest, like Oh, interesting. Several several times because they felt like all the politics had been stripped out of it, right? That that it was no longer an anti-imperialist type of thing. That it was just kind of like let's learn about everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I had a question for you, which is like, you know, you're a black guy in the academy, right? Um, I'm sure that a lot of the things that are happening in these types of spaces you've experienced right either yep. whether tokenization or somebody deciding you're the right type of black guy or somebody deciding you're not the right type of black guy right which actually for your case i can imagine both happen yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, like, like, I, could Im- have, I could imagine a type of white academic who would read your work and conclude that you are not black or something like that. Right. Like, and I can also imagine somebody being like, well, Tyler's in environmental science, you know, he's a comp lit guy and he does extinction and, uh, you know, I feel comfortable talking to him. And so therefore, uh, you know, he's the right type. I can imagine both scenarios, but like, I don't know, how do you deal with it? Because it must be, kind of it, i don't think it's like i i, I never want to like overestimate the types in terms of like the amount of mental space this takes up for people i think for some people it takes up a lot of mental space but for me it's like something i think about occasionally and most of the time i don't think about it at all but in the times i think about it i'm just mostly annoyed right but like yeah. how, how have you dealt with it because you know this is something i'm sure you've dealt with too yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um I think like you it doesn't like occupy a ton of my bandwidth except at these like like transitional moments where it becomes relevant, like in hiring processes or whatever. Or like I remember at NYU, um, like it was a couple of years before I realized that I had been given like a minority scholarship on top of my like regular grad student scholarship. Nice. <laughs> and I found out because like, you know, um, I was talking with a friend about like, you know, we had a increase in pay that particular year and like mine went up more than him. And it's like, what the fuck? We're supposed to be on the same thing. And then, so I asked like our HR people and they're like, Oh, you're on the XYZ scholarship. It's like, what the fuck is that? And I just like, <laughs> I didn't apply for it. They just slapped it on me. I never right. found out I had been given it, you know? And it's like, I mean, I wasn't going to turn down the money, but I, at the same no, time, it was no, like, you... I was like, fuck you, you know, like it was just, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I found it so frustrating. Um, but you <laughs> That's know, I so think great that they didn't tell you. They're just dude. Like, no, they didn't tell me. I found out like three years in. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I definitely get it like both ways. I think on the one hand, you know, I went to you know fancy northeast schools, and I you know I grew up in like a rural suburban place with a bunch of white people, and I love the Grateful Dead and the Allman Brothers, and like I think you know uh, I like make a certain kind of white person perfectly comfortable, you know, because I, I there's not like a lot of cultural difference, uh, but then. On the other hand, I also definitely make, I think, a lot of white academics very uncomfortable because they, you know, they um, they just want 
black people who confirm their political priors. You know, there's like constantly, you know, you have to listen to black voices. But then if the black voice doesn't say, you know, something that toes the exact line of your, you know, progressive pieties, then suddenly, you know, listening to those black voices gets a lot more complicated. You know, there's a great scene in American fiction where, um, you know, the they're voting on this book and the two black people, like this white woman is always talking about listening to black voices and the two black people are like, this book fucking sucks. Um, and then the other, <laughs> then it's pandering. And then the other three were like, well, I think it's great. And they like just override them, you know? And so there's like a lot of stuff like that where I'm like, uh, like, you know, I definitely think um, there's a lot of, you know, nice white liberals who think they're nice white liberals and they listen to black voices and up until the point someone disagrees with them. And then they have to find like alternative explanations for why you are the way you are. I mean, this is true just also in like the media landscape where people constantly, I'm, I'm sure you could. It's just true of like, liberal. Well, yeah. You know, they're like, America. well, he must be like, getting money somehow from saying these things. Cause there's no way he believes them, you know, or like, yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I get it both ways. I mean, at this point I've kind of at work, just, I don't care anymore. Like I just, I wear my camo hat and my flannels and I've just, I don't give a shit. You know, I, I've just kind of given up on the, um, you know, performance of a, a certain kind of, you know, identity that folks expect. But you were asked to do things, right? Like you were asked to do oh, yeah. the MLK, MLK weekend, right? You're one of the organizers of that at yep. Bates, right? Like, so it's not yeah. like they're, it's not like you're like, that they've basically been like, well, let's not think about oh, no. at all. I mean, one thing I will say is that um, it like Bates has a real, like Maine in general and New England kind of like free speechy tradition. Um, and so, I am like very like I've never heard a word from anyone in administration about anything I have to say um, and nothing but support. And, you know, they still put me on the things and MLK and whatever else, you know, um, which I've come to like, actually. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, I I don't know. It's definitely um, uh, it's funny because like you, it doesn't take up a lot of my bandwidth. But then there are moments where you're realizing your race is taking up a lot of other people's bandwidth. And you yes, realize yes, that when yeah, you're like, yeah. Oh, or their entire bandwidth like yeah their whole really, bandwidth yeah yeah they yeah. don't really think about you as anything except this right yeah it does seem like you think this is pretty prevalent though in native studies in particular i mean one person you were quoted as saying 25 to 30 percent um when you were talking to people was this like did they tell you other people they suspected was this like behind oh, the no. scenes well, is this yeah, like but pervasive? I mean, nothing i'm gonna make public oh no 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 of, no i don't mean like that i just mean is it like is this a problem that's discussed within the native scholar community? Oh, yeah. And there's a legitimate split. Now, I will say that the mainstream opinion is that we shouldn't be engaging in witch hunts. We shouldn't be mm -hmm. policing identity and we shouldn't be using the colonizers tools against our own. Right. So questions about blood quantum, for example, blood quantum is course, a yeah. tool of the federal government meant to disenfranchise native people and to take away lands and to take away any type of political agency that they would mm -hmm. have to force families apart, all sorts of shit, right? Blood quantum is like one of the stains of American history. Many, there are many stains, but it is definitely one of them. And so why would you use those tools to create divisions amongst our own people, right? There is a very strong current of, we should not engage in these types of witch hunts because they are a colonial mindset, that they are using the tools of the oppressor and um, I don't know. I heard that a lot from people and I took it quite seriously because. So I do like think just that... to clarify, like the sense that um, the mindset 
like this kind of paranoid mindset where we're trying to think like, well, who is and who is not. And like right. that itself is like a product of this, you know, sort of a colonial point of view. Demanding a specific amount of blood, right? Mm -hmm. Demanding uh, proof of enrollment, of citizenship, right? Of, of whether your family is on the Dawes rolls, whatever, like these various ways. I do not like, I'm not saying this is my belief. I'm just sure. sort of paraphrasing what the argument is. That this is a colonial mindset that reinforces divisions within native people and that what it does is that it a weakens sense of community b it also basically makes everyone a suspect but c and most importantly right that these are the exact methods through which that were placed upon native people right by the u.s government to create division, disenfranchise, take away lands, right? Now, the counter argument is that tribal sovereignty is a real thing, right? Mm -hmm. That tribes should be able to decide enrollment for themselves. Um, that trying to implement some sort of broad type of idea that everybody is accepted is actually an invasion of tribal sovereignty, right? that right now what we have is we have an explosion of people who identify as native. I think it's up 80% in the past like couple decades or something like oh, that. Wow. That is not because there are more native people in America. That's because more people are identifying as native. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For benefits. The cynical version of this is somebody who has never had any connection to native people at all, who finds some connection in their family tree and checks it off on a box and goes to an exclusive college and never thinks about it again and never tells a single person that they did this, right? That's the fucking cynical version of it. Um, and that happens a lot, right? One thing I'll say is that I, I found, I read some feedback that was about why didn't you mention Elizabeth Warren? I think it's fair feedback, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I will just state that uh, I found that the, response to what happened with Elizabeth Warren to be one of the most profoundly red pilling experience, you know, political experiences of that election cycle, not of my life, but you know, of that election cycle, where it was so clear to me that Elizabeth Warren, who had never really done much, you know, for native people who had done shit like writing, except writing like cookbook entries, like powwow chow, right? oh which is like a very, powwow chow, I forgot. Yeah, very yeah. obviously recognized thing. And then had clearly used this to her advantage, right? In terms of in the most cynical way possible, in a box checking type of way, and in a way to sort of distinguish herself with uh, the voters of Massachusetts, right? When she was running for Senate, um, that that got basically zero traction because people were like, didn't want to co-sign Trump calling her Pocahontas. Yep. Like, I thought that was like, I thought that was crazy. Totally and it crazy. made me so mad <laughs> and I'm still mad about it because the way that Elizabeth Warren talked about it was so offensive to me because she said, I, I remember this almost verbatim. She was at a debate. She was asked about it and she was like, or maybe public speaking event. And she said, well, the, the Boston Globe did an investigation into whether or not I benefited or not. This is my Elizabeth Warren impression, whether or not I benefited from this identity 
and they found nothing, no evidence of my, of me benefited. And it's like, first of all, what is a newspaper investigation to whether or not you benefited look like? Well, how do you investigate what that? What does evidence you know? look like in that case? <laughs> yeah, other, yeah, than, is- other than fucking common sense that you obviously <laughs> right. benefited. Like there's no, ch- right. like here on the fucking pie chart is where Elizabeth Warren <laughs> benefited yeah. from being a pretendian. Yeah, exactly. We asked every single voter in Massachusetts whether or not it, it, it uh, whether or not her sort of self-exotification as being Native American influenced their their vote in a profoundly liberal blue state, you know? And what we found is that every single voter said, that, like, what the fuck would that investigation it's even insane. be? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she also committed the sin that I think that a lot of people do, which is that the second that it's about them, they basically say, well, I'm not the diversity hire, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm not the diversity hire. And what does that imply? Of course it implies that the people who are diversity hires are less than, right? Yep. Um, and... <sighs> The fact that this was our progressive hero made me so mad. I was just like, this is like, this is a cynic. You know, this is somebody who uh, definitely leveraged a identity that she had no right to leverage in the exact ways in which you shouldn't leverage them. Yeah. And that she didn't do the work to even, even if it had turned out that that, uh, that that 23andMe test that she took, that DNA test had shown a large a, you know, some large percentage. It kind of doesn't matter. Yeah, it I doesn't matter. That. Like you know, like she didn't do the work to be using that type of, to be using that type of, uh, and she hadn't grown up in that type of way to be using that identity, and that and that we just glossed over it while still defending identity, while still identity politics, while still defending affirmative action. We just decided collectively, I think. Not we, but, you know, because a lot mm-hmm. of people are mad about it. But I think a lot of the general liberal public just decided that it didn't matter. You know, yeah. like it, it didn't matter for her because we kind of liked her and because we wanted her to beat Donald Trump. And man, did it make me mad. I hate that tendency in general. I think there's like a um, like I'm a, like definitely was a diversity hire. Like that's the fucking point of affirmative action. Like the point <laughs> is that it makes a difference. If it didn't make a difference, there wouldn't be the policy. And right. people are so weird about that. If you say you're a diversity hire, they're like, oh no, don't so don't say that about yourself. Like I'm sure it's not true. And it's like, of course <laughs> it's fucking true. Like what are you talking about? Like I mean, like just don't I was be a re- diversity hire too. I'm sure every job I've gotten, I was a diversity hire. Right. Like, like I just I don't understand why like it can be simultaneously true that somebody is competent and qualified for the occupation they hold and that they're a diversity hire. And I think it's like way more racist to to play this song and dance that like affirmative action is good, but also like we can't admit that anyone benefited from affirmative action and like diversity hiring is good, but diversity hires don't exist. It just like, yeah, 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 exactly. It's, it's literally insanity to actually put it that way. I definitely was a diverse, I'll just say it on this podcast. I'm sure I was a diversity hire in every single job I've had in media. I'm the idea that there was any job that I got in media where my ethnicity was not a large part of the calculation. I don't, I won't believe the people. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And guess what? I don't have a single problem with it. Yeah. Like like, I sleep um, fine. (laughs) I sleep fine with it. And if you want to argue that I'm less qualified than like eight white people who would have gotten that job, like show me the eight white people. (laughs) (laughs) That conversation, but like, you know, the idea that you have to be ashamed of it, so and that was what was killed me about Claudia Gay too. It's like everyone yeah, yeah, was like, right. "Oh, you can't call her diversity hire; it's racist." It's like that they celebrated her as the first black president. Like, of course, it was a diverse. Like, right, that's the right, point. Right, like, right. it's racist to pretend. 
Yeah, Kentaji Brown Jackson is the same thing, right? Where people yeah, are yeah. like, really? Joe Biden said he wanted to hire a black woman. And I'm sorry, like, that's a diversity hire, but she is clearly qualified and is totally. clearly very smart. And like, you know, you just, the theater of the court, like she's what she's awesome at, you know, in terms yeah, of yeah. asking questions, everything like that. Like, what are we doing here in terms of saying that like, oh, you can't call, like, I don't know. I just found it so, and you know, um, it's a very predictable that Liz Warren to me fell into that, you know? And I think it's also predictable that people f- forgave her for it or just pretended it didn't happen more accurately. Yeah. They pretended it I, didn't happen. I personally will not forgive. Anyway, that's a good place to end our show. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Uh, we do this every week. If you'd like to contribute to the show, it's $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash ttsgpod. Uh, if you'd like to email us, it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. This thing where, I don't know, Tyler, Tyler, you and I write a lot. So I do think that it's nice to sometimes talk about the writing process. I yeah. imagine that some of the listeners are interested in um, us because of what we write not just what we tweet. And so um, let's just do this back and forth uh, occasionally where, you know, we ask one another questions about something we've published because I know that you've been writing a lot. I will be writing. I've been writing a lot too. I don't know. I guess it's a job of being a writer or something like that. But um, let's, let's keep this up. I, I, yeah, this I is fun, it's man. it's going to be illuminating in some sort of way. If nothing else, it, you know, uh, helps us sort of sort out some of the thoughts that we put down on paper. Um, okay, until next week. See you, man.